Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. Brighten your day with a book. Hello, my fellow bookworms. This is Philippa. How are you? Are you you all okay? Oh my goodness, another one of these Philippa times. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes my life's like Miranda, sometimes like Vicar of Dibley. And it was like Vicar of Dibley this morning because it was dark. I It was raining. I was out on my, what I like to call a run, which is just me moving faster than when I walk. Head, embarrassing head torch. I thought it was just the pavement. I thought it was maybe a bit muddy, but it was fine. So I, I, but I ran into this puddle basically, and you know that scene in Vicar Dibley where she jumps into a puddle and it's up to her chin. Well, it wasn't quite that bad, but I've got wet shoes, I've got wet socks, I've been squelching my way round the town. It's not pretty at all. I just feel very cold now, but never mind. It's all good. I've got some great books to talk to you about, so at least we've got that. Um, We've got The Couple at the Table by Sophie Hanna, and Sophie's going to talk to us. Um, We've got The Maid by Nita Prose. Um, the book Holes by Louis Sakar, A Good Day to Die by Amen Allange, and again, Rachel by Marianne Key. So lots of great books. Now, we're going to start with a couple at the table because, as I say, Sophie's very kindly coming on to join us. Before I go on to the book, I should just warn you that there was a slight technological issue with the chat with Sophie. So apologies that the sound quality isn't what I normally like it to be, um, but it's the it's the best I could get it to be. So just bear with, because Sophie's got some really interesting things to say about this book that you, <laughs> I just never knew she was going to come out with. Uh, so it's a very interesting one. And let me tell you more about this book. So As I say, the book is called The Couple at the Table, and this is the blurb. Listen to this. You're on your honeymoon at an exclusive couples-only resort. You receive a note warning you to beware of the couple at the table nearest to yours. At dinner that night, five other couples are present, and none of their tables is any nearer or further away than any of the others. It's as if someone has set the scene in order to make the warning note meaningless. But why would anyone do that? You have no idea. You also don't know that you're about to be murdered or that once you're dead, all the evidence will suggest that no one there that night could possibly have committed the crime. So who might be trying to warn you and who might be about to commit the perfect impossible murder? Yeah, so I'm going to read you, as always, the first sentence of chapter one. 
This is Saturday, 4th of January, 2020, Lucy. My first thought when I open the door and see William standing there is about the bell of all things. It makes a repellent noise, loud and harsh sounding, more so than any other doorbell I've ever heard or lived with. And there are times, like today, when I seriously consider ignoring it because I'm too busy and mentally overloaded to contend with any unexpected visitors. Well, as you guessed, that was more than one uh, one sentence. Sorry about that. But I just I just wanted to give you a feel for the writing. I mean, Sophie is an accomplished author. Um, and as I say, I was really excited to talk to her. So just apologies for some of the sound. But please bear with me. It's a she's got some great things to say. So Sophie Hannah, whose latest book is The Couple at the Table. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me on. Well, it's so good to talk to you, having followed you for years and years and such a history of writing wonderful books. My first obvious question has to be, what gave you the idea for this particular book? Well, several things all came together at the same time. One was that I was rereading Death on the Nile by Agatha Christie. I'm a huge Agatha Christie fan, as I'm sure you know already. I was I was rereading Death on the Nile because I knew that the movie, the new Hollywood version of the movie was uh, coming out soon. And I realized that I hadn't reread the book for ages. And um, I thought, I really want to have read the book in recent times by the time I go and see the film version. So I was rereading it and realized what a masterpiece it was. It had never been one of my favorite Christie's until that point. And I reread it and thought, how have I missed the brilliance of uh, of this book? And I realized that part of the reason I was so drawn to it when I, you know, on this particular rereading is that I just felt that the the sort of dynamics of the poisonous love triangle between Simon, Linnet and Jackie, it was just everything. It was so brilliantly done and it really resonated with me. Um, because I had personally got sort of accidentally trapped in a poisonous love triangle myself just a couple of months earlier. Yeah, but not in a fun way. <laughs> not in a fun way. I didn't get any of the, the, the romance. What happened was one of my friends, one of my close friends, um, fell in love with the husband of one of my other close friends, and she and the husband basically went off together and my other close friend was devastated. And as you can imagine, that that was not fun for anyone involved, but it was particularly not fun. Well, no, actually, I, I was probably the least badly affected, but it was horrible for me because um, the the husband and the friend who was going off with the other friend's husband, they basically tried to confide in me about their romance and get and they want they expected me to keep it from my other close friend and it was it was all just horrible anyway this resulted in the friend who ran off with the other friend's husband she about 3 weeks after i think she saw that i wasn't going to fall in with with whatever agenda she had for me she wrote me the most poisonous vicious letter three 300 pages full of absolute vitriol saying that I'd betrayed our friendship and how could I sleep at night and all this, basically just because I wouldn't turn against my other friend in the way that she wanted to do. Anyway, so 
that it, it was so funny because I, I mean, I don't know about you, but I am not used to receiving 300 pages of vitriol through my letterbox. Like it's never happened before. And I cannot sort of emphasize enough how like I, it was so shocking and traumatic. And even though now at a distance of a couple of years, I can look back and go, why didn't I just read that letter and think, well, she's obviously a cow. Yeah. I was kind of traumatized by having got three pages of handwritten um, sort of viciousness. Um, and eventually, obviously, I was fine and I calmed down and I realized that anyone who could write to me such a horrible letter wasn't ever a good friend. You know, I was just, I'd obviously, you know, got that wrong, but never mind. And I moved on. But because it was so shocking, I mean, I literally kind of, there were, there was probably about a week and a half to two weeks when I was just not okay. I felt like I wanted to leave my house and go and live somewhere else. I wanted to be in a place where the poison pen letter writer didn't know where my letterbox was. I kind of had a massive kind of fear reaction to it. Anyway, all of this meant that by the time I reread Death on the Nile, I had been personally affected by a horrible love triangle situation. So I think it resonated with me even more. So I thought, right, I want to write a sort of contemporary um, Death on the Nile homage. Now, having said that, The Couple at the Table's plot is nothing like Death on the Nile. So even though there is a honeymooning couple and an ex-wife, it is not at all the same plot as Death on the Nile. So please don't think that if you've seen Death on the Nile or read it, that you know the solution to The Couple at the Table. It is very, very different. Um But then because I was also thinking of Agatha and all the brilliant things she does so well, I then thought, right, I actually want this to be kind of a locked room mystery. And I want to have clues and suspects who all have a motive. So really, I set out to create, I suppose, a very Agatha Christie-esque contemporary thriller. So the couple at the table is absolutely contemporary. It's not at all golden age in its tone, but the structure is quite classic golden age puzzle mystery so there's all these all these couples it's set at a couple's only resort and William and Jane are on their honeymoon and also staying at the resort is Lucy William's ex-wife and her new partner Pete they are there as well at the same time that this honeymoon is taking place and they insist that they had no idea William and Jane were going to be there and it's all a big coincidence anyway Jane is murdered before she's murdered though she sent an anonymous no, somebody puts a note through the letterbox of her um, holiday cottage and the note says in capital letters, beware of the couple at the table nearest to yours. And Jane is, you know, obviously alarmed and completely puzzled and baffled by this um, this message. But luckily she doesn't have to endure that bafflement for very long because she's murdered less than an hour later. <laughs> um, and soon after the murder, the police think they have established that nobody could have got in from the outside into the resort to commit this murder. So it seems like it must be someone at the resort. But then the next step is that the police seem to establish that nobody inside the resort could have done it either. And at that point, they realise they really know nothing at all. Because if nobody from outside can have done it and nobody from inside can have done it, what are they left with? Because somebody definitely did do it because it got done. That's the, that's the sort of, uh, if you've read a lot of Agatha Christie, you will know that she loves those kind of 
impossible scenario puzzles like this seems impossible and yet here it is it also seems to be the case what can possibly be the explanation i don't know how you come up with these concepts like the book haven't they grown you know you there's this initial concept and you just think how how is it going to work out and and yet you come out with it but i'm so sorry that you've gone through that i think I think when you go through something with someone who you consider to be a friend, it's completely different to when it's somebody that you're not as close with. And uh, Well, exactly. And if it's someone who, if, if it's just like any old bod that you've just met on the street, you can think to yourself, um, oh, well, they're obviously a bit strange. And, and of course, you know, now I can see that anyone who takes the trouble to write three pages of really unhinged viciousness and post it through your letterbox is basically not okay themselves and it's you know it's actually got nothing to do with the recipient and everything to do with the sender but at the time it really did feel kind of terrifying and I I I think I know why it is actually and I think it's to do with me so there's this brilliant expression um well it's not it's it's a sort of motto that's quite uh, prevalent in the in the sort of self-help world I'm I'm obsessed with self-help as well that's one of my other one of my other hobbies but there's this motto, which is, if it's hysterical, it's historical. In other words, if you massively overreact to something, you know, I could have looked at that letter and thought, she's obviously a horrible, unhinged person, and I want nothing more to do with her, right, now I'm off to the gym. You know, it should have been a 10 minute thing. But um, I mean, partly, obviously, as you say, there's the fact that I thought she was a close friend. And I was under the illusion that nobody in my close circle of friends would would even consider writing a sort of basically hate mail as a behavioral option you know let alone for your friends but not even for anybody you know so so that was a shock but i think it's true this if it's hysterical it's historical thing because i realized that um you know a lot of a lot of um the stuff i've i'd been through in the past in a more serious way was to do with like suddenly you know, you've done nothing wrong and suddenly somebody gives you an outburst of rage and accusation and kind of unloads a load of anger that you haven't caused onto you. I mean, that that was a big theme <laughs> um, uh, earlier in my life. And, you know, I've processed it and I've dealt with it and I've had therapy and all of that. But it, I think it activated that because it, it, it I was like, oh, I thought I was past the stage in my life when I could just be minding my own business, doing nothing wrong, and then somebody attacks me out of the blue. And I think it just kind of was tied in with all of that. Um, so I did overreact to it. But but now, you see, I'm glad, because if I hadn't overreacted and, and if it hadn't made such an impression on me, I don't think, because the couple at the table, the, the protagonist really is Lucy. Lucy is the ex-wife who has been horribly betrayed by William and Jane. Jane was a close, trusted friend. William was a close, trusted husband. And they completely lied to her in in a really horrible way and went off together. And the psychological and emotional pain that I needed to dive into in order to create Lucy's character and sort of be Lucy for the duration of the book, really, because that, you know, it's in the first person, the bits from her point of view. And she is kind of a version of me. So really all of that came from this horrible experience. And, you know, not that any of us want to have horrible experiences, but right, you know, turning a horrible experience into a book that I'm really pleased with and really proud of 
it does kind of help in a way. Yes, sort of helps you cope with it and a bit of closure. But if I was going to pen a vicious letter, not that I ever, ever would, the last person I would send that to would be someone at the top of their game in writing thriller books and crime books. <laughs> you know, it's just it just it's not even rational on that level, let alone anything else. Cause, cause that... Well, I think, I think if you're like, I don't know, it's so hard to fathom because most people I know certainly all my close friends now but but even just like just most people I just don't think they would regard writing a poison pen letter and sending it as an option like even I know what it feels like to be very cross and feel very hurt but I would just I would just like rule out sending poisonous hate mail as an option just as I'd rule out you know putting a brick through someone's window so it, that's what's kind of fascinating and, and as a psychological thriller writer, because obviously Couple at the Table is, as I've just said, it's kind of a classic puzzle structure, which I love, but it's also very much a psychological thriller. And one of the things that's always fascinated me in my writing of psychological thrillers is, you know, that there's this veneer of civilization. For, for a lot of people, there's this veneer of, you know, we, we say polite things and we go to tea parties and we seem like a nice, well-adjusted, middle-class, respectable person. But if if anything kind of um, disturbs the equilibrium, the, the idea that, you know, of all the people who seem nice and normal and respectable, how many of them, if things went badly for them, even for a second, would resort to that kind of brutal, um, unhinged, just attack whether you've got any justification or not. Like I I and I think most of us would like to think that most people have have some kind of like basic decency and civilizedness in place that we just wouldn't even do that. But what this situation revealed to me was that, you know, at least one person who I thought was in the safe category, you know, turned out or, you know, almost with no provocation, just just because just because I was showing signs that I wasn't a hundred percent falling in with with the the narrative of my other close friend doesn't matter at all. I'm now just in your gang, and you know, um, you know, I hadn't criticised them. I hadn't I hadn't said I wouldn't be friends with you know. I hadn't said anything that was kind of against this person. But even that was enough to just trigger this um, torrent of really kind of vile, abusive um, stuff. So so as a psychological thriller writer, that really fascinates me because, you know, so often when terrible crimes happen, people say, people who are interviewed on the news and they go, I'm so shocked. He seemed so normal. She seemed so lovely. How could this have happened? Um, and we, we almost find it impossible to believe when people behave that badly. So in the couple at the table, as you will know, because you've read it, there's many instances of of kind of seemingly very respectable, decent people who society thinks are completely functional, and they behave in appalling ways. Um, not all of the characters in the book do, but but quite a few of them behave in quite appalling ways. So I find that really interesting to explore as a theme. Yeah. And then you're not just dealing with what you've been presented with, but you're also grieving what you thought the relationship was. And that's a whole nother set of emotions as well. The grief of, of what's lost and what you thought was there. 
Yeah, it's interesting, actually, because, I mean, certainly in, in, in the sort of personal anecdote, um, the main thing I felt after receiving that poison pen letter was fear. I just thought this person is dangerous. Like, if they can do this, what else could they do? Um, so, so there was definitely a fear that lasted a good few weeks. And then I kind of thought, okay, come on now, like, really? They're, prob- they're probably going to leave it at one vicious letter and not do anything else, but you just never know. And so because that's very different to when you're writing other books, because you've had that traumatic experience, was the process of writing it therefore different? Not really, because, I mean, any book I write, I have to be obsessed with some aspect of it. So with Haven't They Grown, for example, that was my last book. That didn't come from anything traumatic at all or even anything real, but it did come from a real idea I had. So the premise of Haven't They Grown is the protagonist, Beth, sees two children. They're the children of her former best friend. And she hasn't seen this friend for 12 years or the children for 12 years. When she last saw the children, they were five and three years old. She sees them again after 12 years and they appear still to be five and three years old. And she knows, you know, she's not an unreliable narrator. She knows that children do, in fact, grow um, and that what she's seeing is literally impossible. But she also knows that she is really seeing it. She's not drunk. She's not having a funny turn. She is seeing exactly what she thinks she's seeing. So she becomes obsessed and has to solve the mystery. Now, that obviously didn't happen to me because I've never met any children who haven't grown. But what did happen to me was I was... I was um, I was about to visit a friend who I hadn't seen for many, many, many years. And as I approached her house, I kind of imagined 10 seconds ahead when she would open the door and I'd see her and maybe I'd see her kids if they were there. And I realized, I kind of shook myself and went, realized I was imagining these kids aged three and five, like as they were when I last saw them. And then I said to myself, don't be silly. They'll be massive teenagers by now. They've probably got deep voices and, you know. And then because I'm a crime writer, always on the lookout for an idea, I kind of went, but what if she opened the door and they were there and they were still three and five? That would be weird. Now, most people would just then forget about that idea and never think about it again. But I thought, huh, that would actually be an amazing opening for a thriller. And at that point, I didn't know what the explanation could be. I knew I didn't want it to be anything that was a cheat. Yeah. Yeah. They're aliens, they're ghosts, a strange drug, none of that nonsense. Um, so for that book, I was obsessed with it because I love the concept so much of children who appear not to have grown. And that sustained me throughout the whole difficult writing process. So as long as there's something, sometimes it's an emotional thing. Sometimes it's that I love a plot hook so much. But as long as there's something, there'll come a moment with any idea where it just clicks and I know that I am fully in and committed to that book and passionate about it and obsessed with it. And once I've had that feeling, then I know that I'm going to write the book. And with the couple at the table, did you know when you sat down to start writing how all the pieces would come together and how it would all work? Or do you discover it as you write as when I start the first draft I always know everything because I I do a detailed plan before I start so the way it happens is I'll have an idea with a couple at the table I actually had the idea for that title about three years earlier than anything else I've I've known 
probably since about 2016, that one day I wanted to write a book called The Couple at the Table because it just intrigued me. And then everything else came together later. Um, So different things just add themselves at different times. And when I've got enough components of a book that it feels like cumbersome to lug them around in my brain for any longer, then I'll write them all down in note form. Then I'll turn that into a detailed plan. And only when I've got a detailed plan that I'm happy with, do I start writing the book. Um, And I know a lot of people don't like to have a very detailed plan because they think it kind of limits creativity when it comes to the writing. But my experience is actually the opposite of that. My experience is if I have a really solid plan and I literally do it like chapter by chapter, what needs to happen in every chapter. And when I say what needs to happen, I mean in terms of incident, but also emotion. Um, If I have that kind of solid plan, then when I start writing, my imagination relaxes because it knows that the plot and the story are all taken care of. And then because it's relaxed, it, it keeps coming up with new, exciting stuff. And often I can just add that to the plan and incorporate it. Sometimes the new stuff my imagination comes up with is challenging what's in the plan, in which case I just choose whichever version I like best. So I feel as though it actually aids creativity And with the couple at the table, I did stick pretty closely to the plan. But as I was writing the last chapter, or what's now the penultimate chapter, I had what struck me as the most amazing idea for a twist at the end. So that, I don't know how recently you read it, but that very final chapter in which there was an enormous twist, that occurred to me at the 11th hour. And I'm so glad it did, because I think it lifts the book it doesn't, it, I mean, this isn't giving anything away, but I'm really fascinated uh, as a writer by the fact that there are different kinds of twists. There are twists that overturn what you've been told already. And then there are twists which don't overturn anything, but just add another dimension. And the couple at the table's twist is in that latter category. I rang my editor and said, I'm thinking of adding this twist. What do you think? And she said, amazing, you've got to do that. And when you finish writing the book, do the characters keep sort of talking, shouting at you, or are you able to close, you know, finish, type the end, and and you've turned their voices off? Um, I mean, they certainly don't talk and shout in an obtrusive or problematic way, but they feel very real. I mean, um, the characters in the couple at the table, I mean, particularly, particularly sort of William and Lucy and Pete, Lucy's new partner they feel very real and yeah no they do they sort of but it's not like they're constantly intruding you know when I'm trying to work on something else it's more that I just kind of feel that they're real I know they're not but um the way I create characters is kind of from the inside out like I I think you know what are they thinking how are they feeling what's their view of the world rather than what do they look like and what's their favorite breakfast cereal so you know, once I've written a book, certainly the main characters feel very real and feel as if they do continue to exist after I finish the writing, especially because once the book is published, then I get loads of emails from people. And usually they just say, really loved it. It was really gripping. But occasionally they'll say stuff about the actual characters, like what they thought of this character. I mean, Lucy, the, I suppose, heroine of, of The Couple at the Table, um, who, who of course, is based on me. A lot of my first-person female narrators are based on me. 
Um, but a lot of people have had loads to say already. The book's only been out about a week, but people have had loads to say about Lucy's character. And a lot of it is along the lines of like, I don't know whether I should like her or not. I mean, I definitely kind of do, but isn't she also a bit weird? And should she be so obsessed with her ex-husband? And all of these things, which which I really love. That always tells me that the character is real to the reader as well, if they're kind of having dilemmas about how much to like them. So is writing an escape for you, uh, a sort of an exhilarating process, or is it quite draining? It's not draining, um, but I wouldn't say it's an escape because it is, I mean, I, I really enjoy it once I'm in it, but I never enjoy sitting down and starting work on any given day. <laughs> um, there's always something I'd rather do. So I have to kind of force myself to start and then 20 minutes in, I'm really enjoying it and then I don't want to stop. The biggest challenge for me is get his finding the time. Oh, really? I'm just, well... <laughs> I know I know this is my fault and I should arrange my schedule better, but my experience is that I'm constantly feeling chronically short of time. Um, so, you know, I'm about to start writing my fifth Poirot novel and I would love to have endless days to just write it in a relaxed way, but I already feel as though, like, okay, I'm going to have to really schedule when I'm going to write these words because there's not a lot of windows in my diary. So then do you have to write quite intensively when it's writing time? Yeah, well, this is what I've always done. And I was I was hoping that Poirot number five would be the first book I wrote via a different method. My usual method is start writing the book at the very last minute that I could conceivably start writing it and still get it in on time. And then really go like the clappers for a short period of time and get it in on time, having spent the last three nights staying up till four in the morning and be a complete wreck afterwards. And I really, really want to change this habit because I have writer friends who don't do that. You know, they write for three hours every day and it's all very calm. And on the day they hand in a book, they haven't lost a week's sleep beforehand. And I would love to be one of those people. And I haven't quite yet figured out how to do it. So, I mean, what I'm very good at is if I keep telling myself must do better and I never do, I'm actually quite good at going, oh, well, it's fine doing it the way you do it. So I'm quite good at, you know, part of me thinks if this is how I write books, then this is how I write books. And maybe that's okay. Yes, I can understand that because sometimes some people are the ones that start things way ahead. Others are right up against the deadline. And if you're the sort of person that can focus and create great words when you're right up against the deadline as you can, then, it, you know, if you start and you've got six months to write your first draft, you, you might find it it's even harder to write in those circumstances. Yeah, well, but I would like to try it just as an experiment. So I think I'm going to do it with my next Poirot novel, which has to be in at the end of July. I think I'm going to start on the 1st of March and try and do like 500 to 750 words a day. I think that would get me the right number of words by the 31st of July. And that that would be really relaxing because when I start writing I mean I've I've barely started and 500 words have almost already been written because once I get going I am quite quick so I do want to give that that method a go so can you write wherever you are in bed at a desk or yeah, on a train pretty much um the only thing I need is my laptop and a reasonable amount of certainty that I won't be interrupted so that's why first thing is good because 
my dog, I have a really unusual dog who, unlike every other dog who gets up at six and wants their breakfast and wants a walk, my dog hates waking up early. He will sleep in till half nine, ten. If you disturb him before then, he gets very grumpy. So he's asleep till at least 10. My kids are 17 and 19. They don't much like early mornings either. So I know that till at least 10 a.m., no one's going to come in and say, take me for a walk or can I have some money or have you have you seen my school folders, you know. So that's going to be really interesting when we read the next Poirot. We, we'll see if it's... If the style is, it'd be interesting to see if that affects your writing style. I don't think it will. I don't think anyone will be able to tell. And actually, I'm kind of amazed when I think about, yeah, I mean, the couple at the table, haven't they grown? And the killings at Kingfisher Hill, which is my most recent Poirot. Those three books were written in the shortest time with the most staying up till 4am, kind of drinking strong coffee, you know, the most of that kind of you know, it's a race against the clock kind of energy. And they are, I think they're three of my best books and I, and they got the most favourable responses. You know, they, they were the books that when I handed them in got the most kind of, yep, yeah, pretty much there already. So I think something weird and fortunate happens in my brain where it's like my brain kind of knows there is not loads of time here. We need to make it good from the off. <laughs> Otherwise, there's a problem. So uh, when you're up against it and time is of a premium, do you ever have it? Have the moment when the words aren't flowing as much as you'd like? Or are you that focused a person that they're just, they're there under pressure? No, the words are always there. I can be a bit creaky when I start. Sometimes, you know, I'll open the file, I'll be like, oh, what even is a sentence? What needs to happen next? But that that's just kind of like the equivalent of, you know, doing stretches before you get on the treadmill. You know, you just have to limber up. Once I'm, once I'm underway, the words never don't come. It's, it's purely my only, my only problem in life is just not having enough time. Um, or And it's not even that I don't have enough time because we all have the same amount of time. We all have the same 24 hours, but... I haven't yet learned how to use time in the best possible way. And it, it's, a, it's a work in progress. So my problem is I'm overly optimistic and I'm overly ambitious and it makes me unrealistic. So I will think, of course, I can do 15 things today all brilliantly. Why wouldn't I be able to do that? And then like my husband will come in and he'll go, um, I thought you said we were getting the 4.30 train. I'm like, yes, we definitely are. And he's like, well, it's 4.25. You're still in your pyjamas and the station is a 10-minute walk away. And there's when he, and things like that happen all the time. And whenever they do, there's like a moment in my mind where I'm just like, oh, I've done it again. I just don't want to admit that reality is real. I want to believe that I can still get that train. And I just have this weird kind of foible of like unrealistic time scheduling. Well, someone said to me that I suffer from just one more thing, itis, that I'll, yeah, you know, yeah. I'll almost be on time and think, oh, I'll just do this. And then exactly. exactly. My last question, though, is for you is just if if you could go back to when you were sitting there writing your very first book, is there anything that you would whisper in your ear? Yeah, I think what I would whisper in my ear is it's all going to go really well in the end, um, because 
my first my first crime novel, Little Face, you know, I just wanted to get it published. That was all I wanted. When Hodder and Stoughton said they'd publish it, I was so thrilled. I literally felt like the most successful writer in the world. It was just heaven. And and that was fine for me. That was a good enough result. I did not expect it to become a bestseller, but it became a massive word of mouth bestseller. And it kind of kick-started a massive appetite for, you know, domestic, psychological, slightly book club, well-written but commercial psychological thriller fiction. Um, and then from there, every everything just, you know, took off and, and I've been able to have an amazing career as a crime writer ever since. So if I'd known from the start that that would happen, then along the way, when I was writing Little Face, when you know, one agent said to me, I don't like the fact that there's the police point of view, but also the protagonist heroine's point of view, make it one or the other. And I was like, desperately miserable, because I really didn't want to make it one or the other. And in the end, I didn't, I sort of stuck to my guns. And, you know, Hodder loved it with the two perspectives. Um, But you know, there were moments along the way, where I created sort of unnecessary suffering for myself, by fearing that, the book would never be published and you know basically thinking pessimistic thoughts so I would go back and say don't worry it's all going to work out fine and I actually I now run a coaching program for writers called Dream Author I created it in 2019 and it has taken off and expanded hugely Um, it now has many hundreds of members I created it in order to be able to coach writers on the sort of psychological and emotional challenges that come with being a writer. Because I think so many writers, without even realising it, discourage themselves by believing, you know, if they get 10 rejections, they believe, oh, obviously I'm no good and never can succeed, rather than this is an absolutely essential step along the way to succeeding. And the interpretations we put on events is absolutely crucial. So, yeah, I've created this whole coaching program. It's 14 months long. And I mean, the people in it absolutely love it. Um, I, like genuinely, I, I, everyone who joins at some point will get in touch and say, this is just the most amazing thing. How did you think of it? It's exactly what all writers need. And how I thought of it was, when I got to the point where I was really happy and felt really successful in my writing life, I looked back and thought, God, I wish I could have had me now to give pep talks to me then, because I would have got where I was going so much quicker and with so much unnecessary suffering avoided. So that was why I created Dream Author. And so we could find that if we just go online to Dream Author. It's dreamauthorcoaching.com. And in fact, do go and look at the website, even if you don't want to join a coaching program for writers, on the homepage and on the page where the detailed description of the program is, there are lots of freebies that anyone can just watch and listen to. There's Dream Author podcast episodes, there's webinars, there's um, examples of written coaching. So you can actually get quite a lot for free on the Dream Author website that um, you might find really helpful. You can also, on the homepage of Dream Author, sign up to get the Dream Author newsletter, which is also completely free. And I send that out sometimes monthly, usually more like once a quarter. 
Wow. Well, that sounds like a, an incredible resource. Thank you. Thank you for that. And thank you for spending the time today talking through uh, all about the couple at the table. Sophie, Hannah, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A lot can happen in the next 3 years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now let's get on to the next book, shall we? The Made by Nita Prose. Oh my goodness, and this has the loveliest sprayed edges. I kept looking at the spread, sprayed edges. In fact, I'm still looking at them now and just thinking they are very lovely. It's a green book and sprayed edges are like a green pattern. Gorgeous. Um, there's a lot of chat about this book. So I thought, right, I need to read this and tell you what I think. Here is the blurb. Molly the Maid is all alone in the world and nobody... She's used to being invisible in her job at the Regency Grand Hotel, plumping pillows and wiping away the grime, dust and secrets of the guests passing through. She's just a maid. Why should anyone take notice? But Molly is thrown into the spotlight when she discovers an infamous guest, Mr Black, very dead in his bed. This isn't a mess that can be easily cleaned up. And as Molly becomes embroiled in the hunt for the truth, following the clues whispering in the hallways, she discovers a power she never knew was there. She's just a maid. But what can she see that others overlook? Right, let's... Well, I'm tempted to read... Uh, yeah, I'm tempted to read the prologue and I'm going to. And I'm going to read you a couple of sentences. Here we go. I am your maid. I'm the one who cleans your hotel room, who enters like a phantom when you're out gallivanting for the day. No care at all about what you've left behind, the mess or what I might see when you're gone. I absolutely love this book. It's brilliant. If you are tempted to read a sort of a murder story, but you 
you find most of them too much, you're going to love this. It's a bit like Elifa, Eleanor Oliphant does murder mystery. It's not, but it's a bit like that. It wasn't at all what I was expecting, and I loved it for that. Um, it's it's a it's quite a light read, and that was lovely. Um, the, it kept it surprised me. It kept me guessing. I loved how it all played out. Um, just a great book. Yeah, it's one of those where sometimes I get these that where the edges, the spines are not the spines, the pages are spray painted, and I think, well, that's the best bit of the book. No. It just added to the experience. It's a gorgeous read. Would thoroughly recommend. Lovely, lovely. Um, and now we come on to another one. A Good Day to Die by um, Amen Allange. Now let's read the blurb for this one. This is quite different to The Maid. So if you're someone who just wants things nice and light, then this might not be a book for you. But otherwise, it really could be. Yeah. Anyway, here we go. Uh, meet pretty boy. Vengeance is on his mind. His real name unknown. His code of conduct. Don't be a pawn in someone else's game. Never underestimate the enemy. Above all, survive. There is no glory in death. His mission. It's been 10 years since pretty boy left the big city. Today he's back. No one knows why, but it's clear that revenge is on his mind. He is determined to make the person responsible for his exile from the London scene finally pay. But his plans seem derailed when he takes possession of a bracelet, unaware that its original owner has set a high price for its safe return. Suddenly the hunter becomes the hunted and Pretty Boy will have to find out if it is indeed a good day to die. Let's do that first sentence, shall we? Um, about two years before, forgive me, Mailing sits alone at the large centrepiece table in an impressively opulent banquet hall. I'm going to read you the next one because it's good. She's bored and unimpressed by the grandeur, but she's enjoying the sultry solo jazz performer on the stage and her fourth glass of champagne of the night. This is a great book. It is violent, very violent, but it's got clear, rewarding writing. It's just so different to many others. I found it very human, a perspective that's often missed with this type of book. It was fascinating. So if you're someone who perhaps enjoys the more violent types of books um, and wants to get to know characters and the story and wants to find a new author, this is it. This is standing up saying, please read me immediately. So that is a good day to die or a good day to read the book. Aha. Oh, dear. It's quite. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, let's just let's just carry on. This is a book. This next book, Holes by Louise Saka, is one that has been recommended by listeners to this podcast. And uh, I finally got round to reading it. Here we go. Here's the blurb. Stanley Yelnats has bad luck, which is all because of his no good, dirty, rotten, pig stealing great great grandfather. When Stanley's bad luck unfairly lands him in the juvenile detention centre, Camp Green Lake, a very weird place that isn't green and doesn't have a lake, he and his campmate Zero, X-Ray, Armpit, Squid, Magnet and Zigzag are forced to dig holes in order to build character. But what are they really digging for? Um, OK, here we go. Chapter one. There is no lake at Camp Green Lake. 
There once was a very large lake here, the largest lake in Texas. That was over 100 years ago. Now it is just a dry, flat wasteland. Um, it's quite a short book. It's about 230 pages. The audiobook version is great. Um, this is a YA, I believe. Yeah, a YA. It's a great story. It's got the ups and downs. It's memorable. It's distinctive. It's got an adventure with a difference. Um, I think it's, it doesn't just have to be YA. It's one for everybody. You know, there were times when I thought, oh, gosh, what, where is this book going? What, how is it going to end? What's going to happen? And then I was just rewarded. Um, really good. Really great book. Um, yeah, I'd thoroughly recommend it. it. Excellent. Yeah, there we are. And let's come on to the final book today. And that is, again, Rachel by Marianne Keyes. Uh, there's been a lot about this book. So let's find out what the blurb is. In Again, Rachel, Marianne Keyes reunites readers with Rachel and the whole Walsh family in an acute and heartwarming sequel, which sheds light on the challenging contemporary issues with her signature humour, honesty and warmth. Back in the long ago 90s, Rachel Walsh was a mess, but a spell in rehab transformed everything. Life became very good very quickly. These days, Rachel has love, family, a great job as an addiction counsellor. She even has gardens. Her only bad habit is a fondness for expensive trainers. But with the sudden reappearance of a man she'd once loved, her life wobbles. She'd thought she was settled, fixed forever. Is she about to discover that no matter what our age, everything can change? Is it time to think again, Rachel? And let's go to the first sentence, shall we? Ooh, well, this is a bit, well... I'll just read the first sentence. The touch of his hand, lightly, lightly circling my belly button, woke me. I'm not going to read any more of that. Um, but yeah, <laughs> let's just say it's a great book. I love the fact that it takes a story that we love and brings it sort of more up to date. Um, that is very of its times that presents us with a different Rachel or is it different um, it made me smile it made me feel sad it made me laugh it made uh, all sorts of things I thought it was really good um, I think it's so brave to come with a follow-up book to something that has done so well and so many people say oh my favorite Marianne Keys is Rachel's Holiday um, and I think they'll be saying my favorite now is again Rachel, a uh, really good book. And it's a corker. How many? 575 pages in the, the copy that I've got. Really good. Loved it. Um, I don't think I need to say any more. So you've got five very different books today. If you haven't, if one of those books hasn't shouted out to you, buy me, read me, borrow me, read me, listen to me, then then I've not done my job. But let's just go through them. So we have had The Couple at the Table by Sophie Hanna. And Sophie very kindly came on to talk to us. We've had The Maid by Nita Prose. We've had um, Amen Allonge, who wrote A Good Day to Die. We've had Holes by Louis Sucker. And we've had, again, Rachel by Marianne Keyes. That's your lot. I'm out now. I've got to speed off and pick up a child. Um, I hope you're doing OK. I hope your week is good. And I can't wait to talk to you next week. Some amazing book, amazing author. Yeah, just can't wait. It's all very exciting. So look after yourselves 
and I'll see you very soon. Take care now. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the QuickBook Reviews podcast. That's enough books, said no one, ever. See you again soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.